This week on Delicious History, on vacation, we finally made it to Europe. Madrid, Spain, to be exact. How did a failed chicken farmer use a case of scotch to help the Allies win on D-Day? Find out on this episode of Delicious History. Delicious History is a podcast designed to show us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, you can visit our website, delicioushistorypodcast.com, or check us out on our socials at Delicious History Podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. This episode of Delicious History is brought to you by the Magic Touch USA. You find yourself doing heat pressing for t-shirts, hats, and other types of apparel? then you have to check out the Magic Touch USA Wow Paper. They don't call it Wow Paper for nothing. Find out a better way to make higher quality transfers for less money by going to the Magic Touch USA. So we finally made it to Madrid. And I have to say that we had probably one of the most extremely bad things happen as soon as we landed. Okay, so my wife and I landed in Madrid, but we have another flight that we had to immediately take after landing. And the situation was we booked those flights separately. So we knew we had to hustle because if we missed that flight, no one was going to cover us because it was booked separately. If you ever traveled internationally, you would know that one of the biggest issues is that whenever you land in a new country, you generally have to change terminals. Sometimes it's no big deal. It's just literally going out, uh, going through security, you know, doing a few uh, questions, putting your passport, going through security again, and then you're good to go. But other times in certain airports, you have to travel miles to get to another part of the airport, to get into another terminal. The Barajas airport here is very large, and you have to take a bus to get from one to the other. And it takes quite a long time to get from one terminal to the next. Well, we got off. We had to wait a while for our luggage, quite a bit longer than I'm used to. So we were already kind of running late. And then something happened. All right. So first issue we had, I noticed that most people were going through security. They just wave them through to leave. No problem. But whenever I saw Latinos going through, they always made the Latinos go through an x-ray machine to check their luggage. I don't know. I think it's kind of profiling, but what are you going to do? Plus, I was with my wife, who's Latina, and well... I had to go through with her. So that cost us another five, 10 minutes. And we're really running short on time. So we get out of the terminal. It was terminal one, I believe. And we take a bus to get to the next terminal we had to go to. We get on the bus. About 15, 20 minutes goes by. We finally get to the terminal we need to. We get off. And I realize I don't have my backpack. And I mean, obviously, you want to make sure you have all your stuff in general. But for me in particular... That's the only place I put things of value. So I have my laptop, my microphones, my recorder, my um, passport, my wallet. All that was in my backpack. So there was absolutely no way we could go uh, on the next leg of our trip without that backpack. So we ended up jumping on a bus, getting back to Terminal 1. I talked my way into, uh, into getting into security again. And I said, hey, I left my backpack here. 
and my backpack was sitting on top of the x-ray machine. And I go to get my backpack, and you would think I was about to detonate a bomb because there was about four security personnel running at me saying, no, 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 do not touch that backpack. So I said, okay, I mean, it already went through the x-ray machine, so they should know what's in there anyway. So the, um, they have me answer some questions, what's inside of it, what pocket can I find my passport, et cetera, et cetera. And they go through, everything checks out. And after that, they were just as nice as can be. You'd think we were old friends. My wife and I get back onto the, onto the, the, the terminal bus again. And, well, we we're actually able to, to make it to our, our next destination. So that worked out pretty good for us. The city of Madrid itself is uh, quite interesting because when you think about uh, Spanish vacations, you might be thinking about Barcelona or going to some of the many beautiful beaches that Spain has to offer. but Madrid's kind of smack dab in the middle of the country. It's just surrounded by mountains and deserts. But still, obviously, a very important city, uh, both culturally and historically, being the center of the Spanish Empire. And obviously has quite a bit to offer. The story we have today involves the Spanish Empire, but at a not great time in Spanish history. And that would be just before the time of World War II. In 1931, most remnants of the Spanish Empire were gone, and Spain itself wasn't doing too hot either. They'd been on a downward slide for close to a century in terms of their military might and economy. Sensing the winds of change that were blowing against them, King Alfonso XIII just walked away from his position without formally advocating. And that's a problem because you can advocate the throne, you can resign as president or prime minister, and then what will happen is, whoever's next in line will take over, or perhaps you can make a successor of some sort. When Alfonso XIII walked away, there was just nothing going on. There was a complete power vacuum. That power vacuum led to a civil war that involved communists, fascists, republicans, all vying for control of the country. Now, amongst this backdrop, in comes the protagonist of our story, Juan Pujol Garcia. Pujol came from a family of means, but he was one of those guys that just kept failing at everything. When he was a kid, he dropped out of boarding school, and he wanted to be a poultry farmer. And in order to do that, he said to his parents that he wanted to go to a poultry farmer academy, which apparently is a thing. Now, I hadn't quite heard of the ability to go to an academy to learn how to be a chicken farmer, but either way, that didn't work out for him. He went on into military service with the cavalry. That lasted about six months, and once his mandatory service was over, he was done with that. So after that, he did the next logical thing, and he bought a movie theater. That didn't really work out either. Eventually, he ended up working on a chicken farm, his life dream apparently, but that chicken farm was doing just about as good as he was at that point. Pujol was also engaged to marry a girl that he wasn't really sure if he loved her or not. I guess you could say Pujol really had nowhere to go but up from here. In 1936, Pujol was again drafted into the military, but he decided that he was just going to skip town instead. Once again, he failed at that, and he was caught and thrown in jail. Then, one way or another, he found himself unknowingly in the middle of a jailbreak, and that's when he caught his actual first break in life and ended up in a safe house in Barcelona. 
But that break didn't last very long, and even though he was technically on the lam and no longer in jail, he had no food or money. By 1938, he was so skinny and sick-looking that he was able to somehow forge a document lying about his age so that he wouldn't be eligible for the draft anymore. Having really nowhere else to go, Pujol got a job at the Majestic Hotel in Madrid. And despite its name, this hotel was anything but majestic. Though, considering that there wasn't a lot of options now given the war, it still was able to pull some fairly respectable customers. One of those customers was the Duke of Torre. Pujol got to know the Duke a little bit and, and even struck up conversations with him. And that's when the Duke told him that he had two older aunts who were princesses and they had a problem on their hands. A liquor problem. You see, because of all the tensions going on across Europe at the time, a lot of imports weren't finding their way into Spain. The Duke's aunts had a strong liking for scotch and hadn't been able to get their hands on any for years. Now, for a lot of you, this might seem like a first world problem, but there's actually something to it. You see, throughout the world, you'll find all kinds of whiskeys out there. But one thing you'll notice is that there's really only one type of whiskey you can count on for its quality. And that's scotch. Okay, so let me explain. The more time I spent in Latin America, especially in Ecuador, the more I noticed that you really had three options when it came to liquor. Do without, because you can't find your favorite brand. Pay a ton of money for a brand that you want because of how it was imported. Or try to make do with some local brand or some brand that you've never heard of. I can tell you from experience, that last option is going to lead to some pretty questionable quality cocktails. No matter where you go in the world, when you see scotch whiskey, you know there's going to be a certain level of quality. Now, I'm more of a bourbon man myself, but I recognize that if someone gives me a bottle of scotch, it's always going to at least be of passable quality, which isn't always true for other types of whiskey. While some people may spend all their money on expensive bottles of 25-year single malt, even something as simple and humble as you know, like Johnny Walker Red is going to be heads and shoulders above most of the off-brand whiskey I've had in my life. So when these older princesses were complaining about the lack of scotch, it may not just have been rich people complaining, but people who wanted a consistent product. Either way, Pujol saw an opportunity. He told the Duke, yeah, I can get some hands on some scotch, not just a bottle or two, but a whole case. But there's a little bit of, a, of an issue we have to address. I need a passport. You see, you can get all the scotch you want. I just got to get myself into Portugal, you see. And even though that might seem like a pretty reasonable request, pretty simple, at that time in Spain, it was almost impossible to get a passport, unless you had some sort of official reason to travel outside the country. Pujol was doing this because he knew that the Duke was a man of influence and his ticket out of Spain. And this seemed to be the best way of doing it. Well, Pujol was not the only desperate person here. So was the Duke, because he had a couple of older aunts to get off his back. So he made arrangements and the deal was done. The Duke had two happy princesses in the family now that they had all the Scotch that they wanted, and Pujol had a passport. He could finally get out of the country and start a new life. Under most circumstances, that would have been the end of the story. But you see, he decided to leave the country and start a new life 
1939, just as England declared war on Germany. No matter where he wanted to go, the world was not the place it used to be anymore. World War II had just begun. Seeing what was going on in the world at the time, Pujol knew that he couldn't just sit on the sidelines and do nothing. In his 1985 book, Operation Garbo, he talked about what it was like seeing Hitler and the Nazis in the newspapers. He said, quote, My humanist convictions would not allow me to turn a blind eye to the enormous suffering that was being unleashed by this psychopath. Unquote. But seeing as how Spain was technically neutral in the war, Pujol had to find a way to help on his own. In January of 1941, he walked into a British embassy and asked if they had any openings for spies as one does. He spoke to multiple secretaries within the embassy, but none of them were impressed or in the least bit interested. Then that's when he went to Plan B, become a spy for the Nazis. He did the same thing as he did with the British embassy, but, but this time he got someone to bite. He was told to go to Café Leon at 4.30 the next afternoon. In this café, Pujol met a Nazi agent who went by the codename Federico. Federico's job was to feel out Pujol and see what his deal was. Pujol was just sitting there talking about how much he loved Hitler and the Nazis and everything they stood for. He was making up names of diplomats that he had connections with, and Federico was actually pretty impressed, and they scheduled a second meeting. One of the things that impressed Federico was that Pujol had a passport, which again was a pretty big deal at the time. But just because you had a passport didn't mean you could just go anywhere you wanted. In order for Pujol to leave Portugal, he had to get an exit visa, which he tried to get and once again met with failure. But he wasn't done trying just yet. He ended up meeting a fellow by the name of Jaime Sousa. Sousa just happened to have something that was quite attractive at the time, a diplomatic visa. Pujol decided that he was the kind of friend he needed at the moment. And so for the next week or two, these two guys were inseparable. They were going to cabarets and nightclubs, restaurants, you name it. Well, one day they went to a casino together, and when they were playing roulette, Pujol pretended that he had a really bad stomach cramp and went back to the hotel. When he was there, he opened his companion's suitcase, looked through the passport, and started taking pictures of that diplomatic visa. With just those photographs, Pujol was able to forge himself his own diplomatic visa. He then took that visa and went back to Federico, who was now even more impressed. Of course, the official story was that the visa was obtained by one of Pujol's many friends of influence, but it wasn't the first or last time that he would forge documents or lie. From that moment on, Pujol was now an official Nazi spy. And I'm sure his mother was so proud. He was given thousands of dollars in cash, classic spy equipment like invisible ink and ciphers, as well as a code name, Arabel, which means answered prayer in Latin. The first thing he needed to do was to move to England. Then he was to get a job as a radio producer at the BBC and send over British intelligence information. This is where things take a turn. Pujol didn't get a job with the Nazis because he loved the Nazis. He thought he could use his job as a Nazi spy to gain some leverage to become an Allied spy. So immediately, he took all the stuff he just got from his handler and brought it to the British embassy. Once again, he started to offer his services, and this time he had all the things to show that he could literally be a double agent. 
Once again, the British did not require his services. There was actually a few reasons why they didn't want to use him. First of all, taking a Spanish citizen as a spy may have caused some undue political issues that would have caused Spain to join the war. Another thing was that Pujol knew absolutely nothing about England, including the language. But he was going to show them. While still in Portugal, he went and bought tourist information about England and made a plan. He was going to create a network of spies that worked under him. Except none of those people actually existed. The idea was that if any of the information he turned in proved to be incorrect, he could always just blame it on his underlings. Plus, he was also able to bill for the spies that were working under him. If nothing else, this guy knew an opportunity when it presented itself. He started out by making up information based on assumptions he made looking at newspapers and phone books. This didn't really lead to anything, but at least he was starting to get information out there. What he wanted to do was to be in touch with the Allies and get some real information so that he could pass it off to the Nazis to gain some legitimacy. Time and time again, he continued to be rejected. But that all changed in a flash. Pujol wrote to his handlers that there was going to be a convoy of Allied ships leaving from Liverpool going to Malta. He was just guessing, but as it turns out, that wild guessing that he was doing in his communique was a little too close to the truth. When MI5, Britain's spy network, got a look at those communiques, they started to panic. All of a sudden, they went from rejecting this guy to sending out their best agents to find him. A few weeks later, Pujol tried doing the same thing by saying that there was an armada leaving Wales. There was no armada, but the Germans did send U-boats and Italian fighter planes to take care of it anyway. This ended up being a big waste of resources and man hours. Now that is what finally got the Brits' attention. If they could just keep sending the Germans and Italians on wild goose chases, that could work out pretty well for the Allies. So in April of 1942, Pujol was officially working for the Allies as a double agent and was smuggled into London. Because of this now official status, he was able to get actual information about the Allies' plans to feed to the Germans. This is exactly what he was looking for the whole time. The more actual information he could give to the Germans, the more legitimate he would seem and the more trustworthy his reports would be. At first, he started to give information that seemed logical but really had no truth to it. But over time, his reports became more and more accurate. For example, he would send reports that were mostly true but had one major flaw that didn't allow the Germans to gain anything from it. For example, he would give plans for a real attack that was going to happen, but have it sent out in such a way that it would arrive a day late. One time the Germans asked for train schedules so they could do some bombings, and that's what they were given. The only hitch was that those train schedules were out of date. Despite not being able to really use the information, it was so accurate that everything that was being sent by him was being taken as a top priority. There was even rumors that Hitler himself asked for any of Pujol's communiques to go to him directly. Because he was so convincing, the Allies ended up giving him the codename Garbo, because he was as good as an actor as Greta Garbo, who was a very popular actress at the time. In fact, we're going to start referring to him as Garbo for the rest of the story. Garbo was starting to get quite a reputation for himself and was able to convince his German handlers that he now had 27 spies working under him. 
These spies, of course, needed a salary, which Garbo was more than happy to collect for himself. Besides making some coin, Garbo was also able to save lives with this network of fake spies. For example, Germans shot down a civilian plane that was flying between Portugal and London. Everybody on the plane died, including some celebrities. Garbo sent an emphatically angry communique saying that one of his spies is a pilot, and if the Germans are going to start shooting down civilian planes willy-nilly, well, they can start shooting down their own spies without realizing it. With that information, the Germans made sure not to attack any civilian aircraft that was flying on that route. But things were getting more serious as the war was going on. By 1943, despite not really giving any information to the Germans that they were able to use, there was a document where Garbo was considered more valuable than a 45,000-man army because the information he was giving them was accurate, technically. By this time, the Allies were, of course, realizing they needed to have a major invasion into Europe if they had any chance of winning this war. Now, we know that this invasion was eventually going to be on the beaches of Normandy in northern France. The Nazis were aware that something was going to happen, but they didn't know where it was going to happen. While Normandy was an obvious site for an attack, so were the beaches of Calais, which were 200 miles north of Normandy. The Germans now had two options. They could either divide their forces up evenly between the two areas or concentrate their troops in one of those areas. Of course, for that second plan to work, they would have to get their hands on some pretty important information. Thankfully, they knew just the man for the job. Garbo and the Allies made up a plan. They would send false information to the Germans, but follow up that false information by creating a fake military. Garbo told his handler that the Allied invasion would be taking place in Calais and that a decoy attack would be happening in Normandy. Also, he said that there were bombers that were possibly going to Scandinavia to attack there. Once Hitler heard about this, he ended up keeping about a quarter million soldiers in Scandinavia just in case something happened there. On the coast of southeastern England, the Allies created a military force made of wooden artillery and balloon tanks. But they did make them just realistic enough so that anyone who was looking at them through telescopes or binoculars would think that there was actual military forces there. To make things look even more real, the Allies sent over bombers over Calais in May of 1944, but left Normandy completely untouched. This solidified that this attack was going to happen where Garbo said it was, in the minds of the Nazis. At 6.30 a.m. on June 6, 1944, the Allies started their assault on Normandy Beach. The German troops were absolutely not prepared, and one of the German officers that was supposed to be in charge of the troops took the day off to celebrate his wife's birthday. Ironically, on the day before the largest military operation in history, one of the Nazi generals was picking wildflowers. Oh. And the rest is history. The attack on Normandy is considered to be the turning point in the war and one of the most important days in military history. Despite taking massive casualties, the Allies were still able to come out on top. By the time the smoke cleared, there were more than 10,000 casualties on the Allied side and between four and 9,000 on the German side. Although this is certainly quite a bit of bloodshed, it could have been a lot worse had it not been for a failed chicken farmer who was able to get his hands on some scotch in Madrid, Spain. Well, that'll do it for Madrid. Next week, we will be in the city of lights, Paris, France. Until then, remember that we all write our own history. 
So make yours delicious. Delicious.